Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Renowned Podcast. This is episode nine, and we are your co-hosts and co-creators, Mark Schultz. And Allison Hager. Renowned is a podcast for the curious. We dust off the commonplace and look for new relevance as we challenge ourselves, and frankly, all of you as well, to think critically about the objects that surround us. How do they echo humanity's past, reflect the present, or even foreshadow the future? And with that, Allison, do you want to remind us what random noun we got assigned last time? Yes. Last time we received the word tongue, T-O-N-G-U-E. <laughs> Both of us just sort of went, okay. We got a little too excited, frankly, I think about it. Um, and then rated it highly and like, yeah, it was, it was a good time. So yes, with that, why don't we jump right into our little die roll and see who's going to give us uh, just the hits first. Ooh, I got a six. Oh, I got a five. Ah, close. And I no cigar. It, but it's over to Mark. All right. So my just the hit. <clears throat> um, 15 seconds on the clock. Else. Yeah. And three, two, one, go. The tongue is a critical part of human anatomy, responsible for three major aspects of our experience, sensation, digestion, and communication. That's it. That's it. Plenty of Amazing. Time. I don't know why, but I thought you were going to go over, but you have four <laughs> seconds left on the clock. I love that. You're like, I'm strapping in for you to just go off. I was town. moving the phone where I have the alarm set closer and closer to my microphone so that everyone would hear the alarm, in fact. <laughs> but- you showed me. No, I, I kept this one kind of, well, we'll get to it. Like something about this is very directed to the point. Okay. For, for me this week, but yes. <clears throat> like tip of the tongue. Oh, so, oh it's going to be mm -hmm. like that, is it? It is. Okay. Do you want to team me up? Yes, absolutely. 15 seconds and hit it. I just have two quotes this week. The first is, history has many themes. One of them is that women should be quiet. And the second is, a woman's weapon is her tongue. Ooh, you had four seconds left. Well done. Okay. Yes, I, I can see where this is going. And I love it, love it, love it. <laughs> All right. Very cool. So, yep. You had the high roll. So do you yes, want to go down the pie hole? On in pie hole. I love it. You're different all every time. What? <laughs> um, all right. So let me jump in with my etymology discussion. Boom. Come on now. I had to. Uh, so in Old English, the word tongue is T-U-N-G-E. So even though it's T-U-N-G and we might think now tunge or something like that, um, in modern English, we, we really would say tongue. Uh, it's pronounced exactly the same. However, there was an influence on the language in Middle English, and I had to look up kind of when is that time period again? So it was about 300 years from 1150 to 1450 is when, if you ever hear in, in anything you're looking at, Middle English took place during that time period, 1150 to 1450. So there was a time there where the UN in our words was replaced with ON, so on with on. So as you can imagine, then that changing becomes T-O-N-G-E, right? Instead of T-U-N-G-E, during Middle English, it switches. So I, I couldn't 
exactly find out why that happened. But what I did find that there was a lot of shifting from Germanic influences on English at the time to French influences, uh, especially, you know, around that time period, right after the Norman conquest in 1066. So what I'm thinking, and any linguists that are listening and they're like, absolutely not, or yes, please let us know if I'm butchering this, but it makes sense to me because being someone who speaks French, there is a lot of O-N right? Oh, in, in the language. And so if something had a, a U, uh, UN, I could see in this, you know, very fluid phonetic time period that the, the UNs would become ONs, right? So we have T-O-N-G-E. And that had a variant at the time of T-O-U-N-G-E, right? But they were apparently trying to signal that you were not supposed to pronounce that tonge, right? Because if you picture T-O-U-N-G-E, that N-G-E, you could pronounce that with a hard G, the unge thing, right? So therefore, to try to signal that that was not how you were supposed to pronounce it, tonge, variants like T-O-U-N-G-E or T-O-U-N-G-U-E and the one that survived, T-O-N-G-U-E, right? The way we spell it now, tongue, uh, all came about. So I just think that's interesting to me that we just ended up with this weird fix to something, right? There was a, a word in Old English that we pronounced the same way we do now, but then there was a phonetic, like a spelling switch, but then everybody was like, oh, wait, but that's leading to people mis, quote unquote, mispronouncing it. So then let's change it. And then let's have a variant of that change. And that's the one that we now have inherited so many years later. So it's kind of no surprise to me that we have this reputation as a language in the world that English can be difficult to learn because we have a lot of weird sort of inconsistent rules, right? And the like combinations of spellings and things. And so I think that is probably an example of one. You've got Germanic and French influences coming together. You've got somebody trying like rules to try to correct mispronunciations just leading to other variants. I just think that's wild. I think it's most interesting that it's probably one of the more prominent examples of the, this thing happening. And it's about the word tongue, which is the <laughs> organ we use to pronounce words. Right. It's my it's favorite part about that. Wild. Yeah, that's very true. It's very true. Um, so all of this, uh, one of the quotes that I saw about the spelling of it, it says the, the spelling tongue is thus neither etymological nor phonetic. It is only a very small degree historical. Like they're just tearing it down. They're like, this thing really doesn't make any sense. Like etymologically, it didn't really evolve accurately. Phonetically, it's kind of a mess because it's just a mishmash of like fixes. <laughs> so it's just like, wow, did we end up with this thing? Anyway, um, the first recorded use of it back in old English was 897. And that was spelled T-U-N-G-A-N. Um, yeah, so that's just an example of, of I think, why English can be tricky. Okay, so before I jump down the rabbit hole, I figured as always, show up with a trivia question. Uh, so audience, try to answer this, see how you do along with Allison. So about how many taste buds does a human have? I don't know. Um, 15,000. We've got 10,000. Okay. Not bad. Pretty close. Uh, we have 10,000 taste buds. I, that's 
Very good. <laughs> uh, Fifteen, uh, sorry, ten thousand taste buds, and they renew themselves every two weeks. However, over time, they're not all replaced. <laughs> That's a bit of a downer, buzzkill here. But we're born with about nine thousand. Uh, not sorry, not about ten thousand, nine to ten thousand. Uh, and by the time you're a senior citizen, you're going to have about half that. Oh. So we don't realize that, right? We think of getting older, you lose your your vision and your hearing, but you're losing taste and also um, some of your smell, which smell has such a massive influence on taste as well. So yeah, you know, appreciate, right? What you have and what you can taste. Uh, but also I was reading, you know, folks realizing, oh, these little quirks that some senior citizens can pick up when they get older, like why is grandpa putting Tabasco sauce on everything? Those types of things. Well, just be able to taste, you know, something different or, or, to, or literally to spice it up. Um, so yes. So transitioning based on that, the tongue has three ma uh, main purposes for us. And the, the first of which is taste. And so one thing that I was interested in learning about and sort of, you know, understanding for the first time in my life is I knew taste buds. But I never really understood anything more than that. I was like, oh, we have taste buds. Maybe back in school, I remembered sections of the tongue. And I'll actually talk about that in a second because that's um, sort of a, a myth about you only taste certain things in certain parts of the tongue. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into that. But so taste buds, what are these, what are these buds we speak of? Um, so taste buds are actually bundles of taste receptor cells. And they do in fact look like little buds or even like little bulbs. They're in that shape. However, they're not what you can see on your tongue. Um, you may know, have known that, Allison, or audience, you, you may have known that, but yeah. I kind of was the one thinking as I'm looking at those little bumps that those are my taste buds. Yeah, uh, I absolutely assumed that my right. entire life. <laughs> no, so apparently what we're able to see, those, those bumps are uh, papillae uh, or papillae. So those are... Um, small round raised dots. It's it's epithelial tissue, right? It's um, epithelium being the type four, I think four different types of tissue that basically um, separate organs on the outside of things that you're, so epithelial tissue in the, in the skin and so on. So on the tongue, yeah, they're just, and they're uh, sort of organized into these little bumps. Now on the sides of them, of these tiny bumps between these papillae, are the taste buds. So if you just picture like this, the, a round, um, right, protruding like bump, not on the top of that little bump or this little hill, so to speak, but along the outside in between that bump and the next one, say, along that wall is where you have the, the actual taste buds lined up. So if you picture this papilla, I, I guess is probably the singular, a papilla standing vertically, uh, then the taste buds are stacked along that outer wall, lying on top of each other horizontally. Uh, and so each taste bud is, is really a bundle of taste receptor cells. And uh, the, the information, and, and just a reminder, audience, we post all our works cited on our website where you can dig into where our research came from if you're interested in reading it. So one of the, uh, the quotes here that, that I had run across was from a professor at Colorado State University that was describing these as sort of looking like bundles of bananas, really, <laughs> in shape. If you put a bunch of bananas together, right, and you put them in a way that they're curved away from each other, that's what this like cell kind of looks like. So all the tips of the bananas 
when they come together at one of the ends, creates a little opening, you know, in between all the tips of the banana, so to speak. Uh, and that becomes a, a pore, right? There's a hole where things can kind of go into between the bananas, so to speak, to continue using that visual. Um, so this pore therefore has little, uh, little strands of quote unquote hairs, right? Microvilli. Uh, and you, everyone may remember uh, villi from high school biology when we studied our digestive tract. Probably the, the most famous villi are probably those that are like, say, in our small intestines and so on, um, used to greatly increase the surface area of our small intestines so we can absorb materials and so on and so on. Uh, so picture these little microvilli are at the end of the taste bud. And those microvilli actually bear taste receptors. And so I had to go a little bit deeper to say, because what I really wanted to understand was, well, what's, what is, what is happening? What is it? I, obviously it's gathering materials like the, the, what we're eating and those, those, those chemicals, those substances, but how is it sensing it and what kind of what's happening there? Uh, so these, um, these small villi have the, have the taste receptors and these receptors, they're, they're structures made of, of proteins that will bind with other chemical structures. Now that may start to sound familiar to some folks, to some folks that may not, who have not taken, you know, um, biology or microbiology, I think it's called microbiology, right? Um, so picture that these little protein structures, tiny, tiny structures, when they come into contact with a chemical structure that can fit it, basically like two puzzle pieces, right? Finding each other and locking into place. When they lock into place, that will trigger an event in the cell. Something happens, right? And so in this case, when the taste receptors bind with a certain type of chemical, the reaction that it has is it's changing the polarization of the cell itself. And this led me, as we talk about going down the rabbit hole, I'm not going to completely go into this, but it is, I think, for follow-up, um, research for me, something that I want to understand is it's called calcium channels in the body. And it's basically how you are changing a chemical signal or chemical reaction into an electrical one. So basically in these tiny, you know, taste buds where all these, these taste receptor cells are once say it tastes something that is quote unquote bitter or sour, or whatever's um, being detected and locking in place, the calcium ions of that cell polarize and therefore converts from a chemical to an electrical signal. And then the electrical signal and the, the rest of the signal travels our, you know, our, our, our nerves and therefore our brain immediately can perceive it and taste it. Huh. And that's, that's the sensation, which I think is, is super cool, right? Like the whole idea of, you know, we always think in, in popular culture, right? We're called batteries in the matrix or something like that. And so we know yeah. there's a whole lot of electrical things happening in our brains and our body, but it dawned on me that, oh, we have to, to sense things, convert them from just chemistry to things around us into electricity. How the hell is that happening? Uh, it's, it's fascinating. Okay. So, um, I mentioned before, right, that it's this sort of a myth that we learn that, oh yeah, back of the tongue is a certain thing or the front of the tongue only tastes sweet, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, no, what I just described this, this mechanism can detect everything. So all parts of the tongue can taste all the taste sensations. And just to remind everybody of what those are, sweet, salty, sour, 
bitter and something called umami, which uh, is the taste of like meatiness. Uh, it usually comes from the amino acids that are in things like meat broth or an aged cheese or something like that. It's also sometimes called the savory taste. Um, there's also some growing evidence that there may be some more that we can consider like a fatty, the, the, the taste sensation of fattiness, um, but that's still being researched apparently. And they're gathering probably enough evidence to say that they can distinguish it from salty and sweet and everything else. Um, so yeah, our taste buds can in fact taste all of them. What does happen is that certain areas of the tongue, the taste buds are more sensitive to, to one than another. So say the front of the tongue can pick up sour and salty, but it is easier and it's more sensitive to sweet, for example, at least I, I believe it's the front. I think um, that's just so interesting because you're right. When we were kids, we would all learn, right? That there was like this tongue map of all the things, yes, but yes. just that there's still new research going on. Just, it's fascinating to me that in this day and age, there's more that we don't know. And there's a cookbook, which I own, but I still haven't cracked open um, called, I might get the order wrong, um, salt, fat, acid, heat. Oh, nice. And they just talk about, right? Because they're talking about like the four components to make a dish. Like when they talk about umami a lot and the savory Nice. piece of that but like the different ways these tastes come together is just something like the combination of those four seems to be really important like to our brains it's like signaling our brains like yes this is something that's good. that makes so. a lot of sense no that, that's interesting and in my reading i hadn't thought of it quite this way i, I think it makes sense like you eat a pepper you eat something that's spicy that it can make you you know tear up and it's it can be quote unquote painful i didn't realize that it is in fact triggering pain receptors is my understanding. So it's, I think the only taste sensation that's actually doing that. So in some ways, spicy is by definition, like a, a pain reaction, which I thought was like, cool. Um, didn't, uh, never quite thought of it that way before, but. Uh, so a quick note on our sensations and their importance in our evolution. If uh, this hasn't occurred to anyone, it's never really occurred to me ever before. But so we are far more sensitive to bitter tasting things than and sour tasting things than we are to sweet or salty. And at first pass, when I read that, I thought, well, that's weird because we get so much energy and calories out of something that is sweet. Wouldn't it have helped us to be able to detect it? when we had to eat it to survive, but no, it's actually more of a survival mechanism of you'll have a bit more time to go find the next sweet or salty thing. If you don't eat, you know, cyanide or ricin or something that will like kill you immediately. And so those things that would taste bitter, but I, two of the poisons I just um, named do apparently taste bitter to humans. Um, yeah. And that, then that clicked, I could see Allison shaking her head. Like, yeah, that Mark, like for real. <laughs> <laughs> we, we probably wanted to, to to pick that up right away to avoid those more than we wanted a sweet treat right yeah, exactly meanwhile i'm like i want a cupcake um <laughs> but maybe i shouldn't eat this bit of really dangerous bison uh so from what i read about the thresholds the the amount of a bitter substance needed for us to taste it is about 1250 times smaller than the amount of a sweet substance needed huh. for us to taste it, right? So a very, very small amount of something bitter is needed chemically. Um, I think it was in uh, moles, right? Um, 
molar values. Uh, anybody who's forgetting that from science class when we were young, uh, that's that's the measure of um, uh, of an amount substance, not the animal. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was that was pretty cool. Um, so moving on then to chewing and swallowing. A couple things that I learned: I had never seen or read the word deglutition before. Oh, me neither. That's a new one. Yeah. Chewing and swallowing is uh, the, the act of swallowing. That is, is called deglutition. And so can't get enough etymology today. Etymology, etymology, etymology. Everywhere. <laughs> uh, deglutition, which comes to English through the French deglutition uh, in the mid 1600s from the Latin deglutare which is to swallow down. So the day in that meaning down in some sense, I think anybody who speaks any romance language would be like, but that means of or from I'm like, eh, yes, but apparently it also means down in a way. So day and then glutare is to swallow. So at first when I read this, I was like, wait, you already have swallow. Why do you have day glutare? I'm assuming, and I don't know this, that the swallow by itself is probably to encompass something. I'm assuming like to, right. To, to swallow up rather than to, to swallow down. Uh, so that, that's where it comes from. Uh, the tongue plays a part in swallowing. It is in the first of three phases. You can think of swallowing broken into the oral phase, the uh, pharyngeal phase, and the esophageal phase. And this makes sense, right? I mean, you've got the oral cavity, and then you've got your pharynx, um, and then the esophagus. So yeah, the, the tongue is just... Um, um, Sorry, I'm just trying to say the tongue is not just one muscle there that that moves things around. That's probably the next thing that I think we all think of is um, the tongue being like one muscle that we're manipulating in all these ways. Uh, however, it's not just one. It is in fact eight muscles which intertwine. There are four that are called the extrinsic muscles. Extrinsic meaning they're sort of, it's a word I looked up that me when you're talking about physiologic, the physiology of the body, extrinsic or things that are farther away from <laughs> like real professionals in this field are going to be like banging their heads, but far away from where you think the action is happening, like where the important like focus is, there's something that's extrinsic to that, right? They're, they're a little farther away. So when we think of the tongue, we're thinking of it, what we see, where everything's moving in our mouth. These four down at the base are therefore extrinsic. Uh, and they were the ones that really secure it to other structures. So they, they um, are threaded into bones in the, the head and the neck, um, the, the base of the skull, the front of the jaw, and then they even sort of wrap up around the, the palate, the soft palate area. And then the other four muscles are really what make it possible for us to do all of the crazy things that the tongue can do, right? When you, when you stop and think about it, it's sort of seemingly endless positions um, uh, and shapes and, and, and ways that we can, we can use our tongue as humans, which is pretty wild. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit more in a second, but trivia numero uh -oh. Okay. So this is just a true-false. The tongue is famously known as the strongest muscle in the body. Is this true or false? False. It is in fact false. <laughs> I love those types of questions because I bet in your mind you're like, 
well, the fact that you're asking it and it's so famous probably means it has to be false, but maybe exactly. it's a question and it's true. Yes. That's exactly what's going on. But I also think in some of my research, I think I read the answer. So. Oh, nice. Cool. So it is false. Uh, and here's a couple of reasons um, that we can, uh, where we can think about it. Because maybe already if somebody's a diehard believer in this, this fact, you're like, well, if you think of it in endurance or you're thinking of it in everything else, isn't it true? Well, in terms of overall power, um, being delivered by it, bigger means better. So you'd be looking at the quadriceps in the legs uh, or the gluteus maximus, which I believe the gluteus maximus is technically our largest muscle maybe. Um, so yeah, so not the strongest in the force that it can actually push or provide, right? That's not, that's not why it, that's not true. Uh, in my notes here, the masseter muscle in the jaw is another contender from that point of view for strength because that has the shortest lever that it is physically manipulating, and therefore it has to take a lot of energy to move a short lever in that in the way that it does. Uh, the other way of thinking of this, though, I mentioned endurance. If you're thinking, well, you know, my tongue is never tired and it's always moving, uh, isn't that something about how strong it is? we might forget if you're thinking of endurance maybe comes close, but we need to remember that the heart is a muscle that has been pumping constantly our whole lives. Uh, and so, yeah, that wins out in terms of something that just never literally never stops. Okay. So my last section is speech, right? We covered taste. We covered deglutition. Maybe we all call it that forever and have people think we're really elitist little academic snobs. <laughs> um, uh, but the last one would be speech. And the tongue, uh, one of the, the factoids I read, the tongue is extremely agile and quick, and it can produce more than 90 words per minute using more than 20 different movements. And so what I think is interesting is some of the research I got into was those 20 different movements can create a whole range of different sounds. And so what I liked to revisit, um, and this has kind of happened for the first time during this podcast for me, is usually I'm reading up on something that I don't know anything about and therefore coming up with you know brand new things to, to talk about. In this case, I was an actor who took a lot of speech and voice classes professionally um, uh, at, at college at NYU. So some of this... I had to actually study because an actor that's like, you know, well-trained and professionally trained is learning that as the basis of being able to truly learn an accent, right? When you're not just shooting from the hip, doing something fun at a party or something, but when you actually are in a show or a, a play or a movie where you need to nail a particular accent, you will be breaking down your script into phonetic symbols for every every sound that we can make and then learning what you have to swap out. That's what you really do. And you like drill that down um, so that you can hit a regionalism even much less, much less going from like, you know, classic things we think of like an Irish accent to English, even within certain areas of, uh, of Ireland or certain areas of the U S. So a breakdown of a way, maybe audience that you've never thought of English before. So English has 44 phonemes, phonemes being the unit of sound that we can create, right? So think of ah, b, s, k, d, 
all that, all, you know, all the sounds that we probably would associate immediately with alphabet symbols, right? That breaks down more into 24 consonants. And in those consonants, there are some things that I wanted to share that, again, we may not have thought of. And it's something that the tongue plays obviously a major role in. <clears throat> you can think of consonants falling into kind of two categories that play with each other a little bit, fricatives and plosives. And Allison, I'm actually not sure if we've ever talked about this, if, if you may know this or not in some ways. Um, so fricatives are things that use friction and the controlling of, of sound. So shh, the SH sounds shushing someone, right? That sound is fricative because you are forcing the air into a smaller um, space and you are counting on the turbulence of the air against your teeth and the, the tongue in a certain position to have it make sound. Shh. Um, so the, the friction of that is kind of defines why that's called a fricative. And then plosives um, are when you actually, you don't just manipulate the airflow, you actually cut it off for a second and then let it explode, plode, which is part of the reason why I believe it's called a plosive. So a B sound, for example, you can't say the letter B without making a plosive. You, you can't physically make the sound because you have to cut off the air with your lips and your tongue and then let it pop out. And then you have to let it explode back out, right? Buh, buh, duh, cuh. A lot of, we have a lot of plosives. Um, there's like fancier names for them, but plosives, stop plosives are, are one of them too, right? You have to stop it, stop the airflow and then let it go out. So hopefully not boring anybody completely to death, but these are hopefully ways you've never quite thought of the structure of what our tongue is doing in creating the 44 base units of sound uh, that we use in our in our 24 consonants uh, and then our 20 vowels. So that's how our 44 is broken up. 24 consonants, 20 vowels. So fricatives, plosives, shh, puh, all that. The other thing you can think about are when you either voice a consonant or it's unvoiced. And what that means is when you engage your vocal folds, your vocal cords or not. So a way that you can think about this is if you were to hold your, your hand to your neck and make certain sounds, you don't feel any vibration because it's not, it's unvoiced. Like an H sound or that fricative is unvoiced. You don't feel any vibrations. It's not pitched is another way you can say it. But if you were to make that like a zhuzhing sound, it's the same fricative. It's the same tongue formation, but it, there's no voice. You don't feel your vocal folds engaged. And then with the zhe, you do, right? Shh, nothing. Zhe. Everything's vibrating, right? So that is a, that's a, a voiced sound. So hopefully that gives you new ways of, like I said, thinking about the, the combination of how we create these things. Because what's interesting is then these consonants kind of work in pairs. And anyone who's listening to this who is, in fact, an actor or has some speech training in any way, uh, some of these will, will sound familiar. But B and P are both plosives, P and B, but one is voiced and one is unvoiced. And that's really the only difference. B, P, right? You're not voicing a P. You're not saying like, you can't because it becomes a B, basically, right? P, pop, <clears throat> bop, pop. 
It's just the level of, of using your vocal cords or not. The same thing with D and T. D is in dog, T is in Tom. Those are basically just brothers of each other. One is voiced and one isn't. Duh. Uh, so I think that's kind of kind of cool how that uh, you know has has organized. So really well, it gives briefly, me a whole new um, appreciation for speech therapists and everything yeah. they must have to learn and study to do their job. It's not just basic, you know, teaching pronunciation or people basics about using their mouth. They must understand this like full anatomy and, yes. and the full mechanics of it. So then the, the the last thing I thought I would share here is the the vowels, and this one is is fairly easy, right? Um, you don't have unvoiced vowels, um, at least in English. I, I I don't think it's possible in some ways. Again, anyone listening wants to correct us, find us on social media, and and please do, right? But you you can't have an ah sound that is unvoiced because then it's just like there's mm-hmm. nothing happening there. Um, or a U, a U, E. Otherwise, it's E. It all becomes like H's to me, um, right? So they're, they're basically all voiced. So the only breakdown of these 20 vowels that we have, other than um, like the actual sound A, E, A, O, U, are, diff- are the, the number of sounds that get... Uh, transitioned through. So folks have probably heard the word diphthong before. Uh, Just to remind us, a diphthong is two of these words, uh, two of these sounds that we put together into a word. So when when we say, even if we bump ourselves on something and we say, ow, ow is an ah and a ooh sound that just transition into each other. And so it's two. Diphthong starts with D-I, right? So two. I had to look up the word because I never, uh, even in school when we were covering this, uh, we never had a name for what just one was. It was always just the vowel that you're talking about, but it's technically called a monophthong. Mono, monophthong, diphthong, and then the third is triphthong. So you can see right away, mono, one, die, and try. One, two, three. Uh, so mono, monophthongs would just be ah, e, the vowel sounds that we're used to. English has triphthongs. Uh, that is things like, uh, there's a triphthong in the word fire. Fire, you, you hear y- yourself going from an ah to an e to an uh sound. And then there's an r coloring, there's an uh, r in the end there. Uh, and it's fascinating because a lot of regionalisms um, will take place in how these vowel sounds will be treated in the mouth and, and manipulated by the tongue. Uh, I just, I'll never forget the... Um, the classic example given to me by a, a voice and speech teacher at NYU was, you know, you think of a classic like Georgia Savannah Southern word for fire. It's just fa, and it's just a very relaxed tongue, <clears throat> and you kind of are dropping the r off the end. You almost don't. You drop the consonant nearly altogether, and you're just saying the triphthong fa. There's a fa in the in the yard or something like that, and I was like, oh, that's such a great way right, to, to think about it. And it, it brings um, like a, like a, a cohesion to, um, to doing accents and, and learning sort of the, the tongue manipulations that are needed or not needed in this case. Okay, uh, just to finish off with trivia three, and that's it for me. Uh, English has 44 sounds, which we just talked about. How many sounds 
does the language considered most complex phonetically, that is, most complex phonetically have? Allison, how many do you think compared to 40? 500. Uh, 110. All right. I thought I'd go big. Maybe one. Is it one of the tonal languages? Um, it's a, one that is often considered popping or or click um, sounds. Uh, so it's it's uh, in English pronounced co. But if you were to read it, like I'm looking at it on my screen right now, it's an exclamation point, an X, and then two O's. But each O has a different accent over the top. Um, and so I will not, of course, not even try to. Um, <laughs> Uh, disrespect the language by trying to, to to pronounce it, but if anybody wants to check it out in the um, in the work cited, or we'll maybe even put it in the episode notes, I have a YouTube video I came across where a gentleman is is talking about this language, giving you some background. It comes from uh, Botswana and Namibia area in Africa, and um, it's it's kind of fascinating both to hear it and then to hear his description about you know about the past of it. And so where I left off overall, I think digging in my rabbit hole, like where I would go back, as I mentioned before, to, to sort of learn a little bit more about something is I, I'm still fascinated, as I said, about the calcium channels and how our body, um, you know, our, our taste buds are taking chemicals and converting them into electrical signals. Blows my mind, right? The incredible machine is not a term we, we hear often for the, the human body. Very true. Very true. That's great, Mark. I actually learned so much and so many things you mentioned. I thought, like, I've heard the word diphthong, but if someone had challenged me to tell me exactly what it meant, I couldn't have, right? Just things that you kind of think. Oh, you good, know, good. Don't I think actually only because know. my background with, yeah, with, with speech, it was something that I, I knew closely, but I don't know. I'm glad you shared that. I, I hope that helps people kind of put it in the framework, right? Then of like monophthong, diphthong, diphthong. Cool. Yeah. And also besides speech therapists, I'm just thinking about actors as well um, and all the work they put into it. It's not just mimicking, right? Like you pointed out, I hadn't really thought of that. I've been watching a very old show. I'm sure everyone, most people listening have watched it, but I've just been watching the old miniseries Band of Brothers, um, which is very well done, but very hard to watch. And uh, several, but uh, one of the the primary characters is played by Damian Lewis, uh, who's gained much fame since then. But he's British and he plays a lot of American roles. And you would I never would have known until, you know, I found out. So now I'm thinking about everything he must have done to kind yeah. of affect that. It's yeah. Incredible. No, it's interesting you say that because I think the spirit of it comes from the mimicking, the mimicry. Of um, course. But then right? you like, really have to understand every yes. word. Yeah, because right? you have to How be to do it. mimicking so so perfectly right like you, you kind of just to make sure you're very thorough yeah you have to you do the book work so to speak but yeah <laughs> cool neat okay well i went in a very different direction uh right. once again so Excellent. i think that's good right that we both didn't um so i will jump down my pothole um I was going to start out by just talking about how easy, I, I mean, I still will talk about it. I'm not going to let Mark derail me now, but Mark <laughs> Mark really pointed out a lot of this, but it, it's perfect. It's perfect segue because Mark was talking about the multiple functions that our tongue is involved in, right? So we sometimes overlook that, I think. It's so important in so many ways. It's the basis of how we taste. And Mark gave us a great education on that in partnership with our noses and our brains um, in how we speak, partnership with our larynx, et cetera, um, sexually in partnership with all sorts of stuff. 
that Mark, Mark tastefully sidestepped that. Um, and for physical expression, right? Uh, we stick out our tongue as an insult or a sign of aggression, like in Maori culture and the hakas, or as a sign of cuteness, you know? Um, and of course, then the word tongue also signifies language overall. Uh, so we talk about our mother tongue, right? For our, for our primary language, her native language. So once I started poking around to find a path on this one, there were so many potential paths, what fascinated me most was, was tongue as a metaphor for our voice. So without a tongue, you can't speak. When you can't speak, you don't have a voice, you don't have agency. So the power of our voices and how the tongue is the foundation um, of so much of that. So there's a Greek myth that captures the um, importance of the tongue and of our voice nicely. Um, I mean, it, it's actually not nice at all, but it's apt. <laughs> and um, Sure, it isn't. And that's the, the myth of uh, Tereus and Philomela. And before we go any further, I just like to warn listeners, I will be recounting a fictional story, but it does involve a very brief mention of sexual assault. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there as a trigger warning. Thank you for doing that. So like most myths, there are varying accounts, but the most accepted version of this myth was recorded by Ovid in, in Metamorphoses, his, his narrative poem that he wrote about 8 CE. And Philomela is a princess of Athens. She's the youngest daughter of Pandion I, who's the king of Athens. And her older and only sister, whose name is Procne, is married to the king of Thrace. And his name's Tyrius. So after a few years of marriage, living with Tyrius in Thrace, which was considered like the wild lands at the time, um, Procne is missing her family. And she asks her husband Tyrius to allow a visit with her sister. And he agrees to travel to Athens to collect Philomela himself and to bring her back to Thrace so the sisters can be together. So he does this. And when he gets to Athens, King Pandion, the father of the two girls, is worried about letting his only remaining daughter travel into the wilds of Thrace. And he implores Tyrius to watch over her as if she were his own daughter. Um, so off they go. Well, instead of doing that, upon arrival in Thrace, Tereus is overcome with lust for Philomela, and he brings her into the woods to a, a hut in the woods, and he rapes her in the forest, and then threatens her with violence if she ever divulges what happened. But she's defiant. So there's an 18th century translation of Ovid's verse that casts her defiant speech as follows. Still, my revenge shall take its proper time and suit the baseness of your hellish crime. Myself abandoned and devoid of shame through the wide world your actions will proclaim. Or though I'm imprisoned in this lonely den, obscured and buried from the sight of men, my mournful voice, the pitying rocks shall move and my complainings echo through the grove. Hear me, O heaven, and if a God be there, let him regard me and accept my prayer. There's two parts of that that stand out to me. I mean, obviously there was a pantheon of gods in ancient Greece and then the um, English version from the 18th century changed it into the Christian God, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Um, the, the one thing in the third line, she says, um, you know, she's abandoned, but she's devoid of shame. And that has nothing to do with tongue. But I did want to call it out because I just found that like shame is still such a powerful weapon that's used against victims of sexual assault, right. shame them into believing they did something wrong and to not speaking up and like, as far back as eight, see, well, even before that, because the myth predated Ovid. When he recorded it, there's, you know, this example of a woman saying, like, I'm not going to be shamed by this. But the, the key line here is my mournful voice, the pitying rock shall move. So this idea that she has no 
um, recourse here except her voice to tell the world. So she, you know, says to Tyrius, you know, screw you, I'm going to tell everyone. And so he rips her tongue out to silence her. So now she doesn't have a voice, but it doesn't work because even without her physical tongue and her physical voice, she finds another way to be heard. She weaves a tapestry depicting the story of what happened to her and she has it sent to her sister. And her sister Procne receives the tapestry and she is so enraged when she views the tapestry and understands immediately what has happened to her sister, what her husband has done to her sister, that she kills her son, Itis, cooks him up and feeds him to Tyrius. So she has her husband eat his own child. And once Tyrius has completed his meal, she presents Itis's severed head to him on a platter. So now he realizes what he has done. Uh, the famous Dutch painter Rubens, Peter Paul Rubens, he actually painted this scene in 1636. You can see it um, at the Prado. It hangs at the Prado in Madrid or uh, via a link in our show notes. <laughs> I'll put a link to the image. Less um, exciting, but yes, it's there too. <laughs> but so, so, you know, Tarius understands that he's just eaten his own son. He is enraged, uh, of course. Um, and, you know, this isn't using her tongue. In fact, it's not, but almost in solidarity with her sister who couldn't use her tongue. She's also found a powerful voice, right? She's found another way to kind of be heard. Um, so Tarius is enraged and now attempts to murder them both. They flee, there's a chase underway. And when all seems lost, you know, they're definitely about to be murdered. The two women pray to the gods to be transformed into birds so that they can fly away and escape. Which one heard them, I wonder? Know. You know, that's a really good question. And I don't know that. Oh, no. Um, so the gods take pity on the women and they transform Procne into a swallow and they transform Philomela into a nightingale. And from a mythological perspective now, the gods have not only granted Philomela and her sister escape, but they've restored Philomela's voice, right? They've, they've given her this lovely and mournful song that the nightingale sings. So it's it's a... It's a really beautiful, it's a horrible story, but it's a really beautiful, like when it comes full circle that she does at the end, get her voice back in some way. Um, quick note, in actuality, in nature, female nightingales are mute. Only the males sing. Uh, but that wasn't known at the time, so the metaphor stands, as far as I'm concerned. No, no, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here we have as far back as ancient Greece, you know, tales of women being abused and having only one weapon at their disposal, their tongue, their voice. And this myth illustrates a rough sort of justice for one of those women who's a hero by finding a way to her voice and her truth without a physical tongue, and then regains this different voice in the end. But my quick, uh, my first quick hit quote, or no, it was my second quick hit quote, one of my quick hit quotes, can't remember what, what order I put them in, uh, was a woman's weapon is her tongue. And this is from a novel by the author Anthony Trollope. He was a 19th century British novelist who is known for his studies of power structures and psychological interactions in the mm -hmm. Victorian time. This book was The Way We Live Now. And, and with this quote, he's having one of his characters state what has been shown time and again through history. Women typically do not have the physical advantage 
Certainly, most societies have been constructed so that women haven't um, had the same economic opportunities either, leaving them with just their tongues, leaving them with just their voice. And we know that throughout history, there are endless examples of the powers that be wanting to silence women who are too mouthy. So the one kind of strongest tool that women have had historically to defend themselves, to pursue justice, um, has been punished a lot throughout history. You know, women have been put in docks, they've been dunked, they've been imprisoned, they've been gagged uh, time and again. And of course, there's uh, there are a million, um, you know, examples or a million idioms or a million memes or a mil million cultural references to like the nagging woman, the mouthy woman, the shrew, right? Um, and that's because the voice was their only weapon. Uh, there was one particularly nasty deterrent that I thought I would mention because I had never heard of it. Um, it was called the scold bridle. So a woman would be called a scold if she nagged too much. And it was an iron device, picture kind of an iron cage that fit around mm. a woman's head. And it had a iron plate that protruded into the mouth to hold the tongue down. So the cage would be locked around the head and the tongue would be depressed so that the woman couldn't speak. And there were spikes on the bottom of the plate. So if she tried to speak, her tongue would be impaled. If she didn't try to speak, they were high enough that it, she'd be okay. So that was a particularly nasty. It was used mostly in um, England and Scotland is what I read, but also some in Austria. So... <laughs> There is a, an author and a professor named Kathleen Hall Jameson. She's a professor of communication. She also is the director of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at UPenn. And she wrote a book called Eloquence in the Electronic Age. And I didn't have time to read the entire book, but I am um, going to. Um, and she has one chapter that kind of focuses on women um, historically. And it was her quote, which was my second quote in my quick hit, which was history has many themes. One of them is that women should be quiet. And she goes into a lot of how women have been punished for trying to use their voice. So I didn't think that anyone needed to be taught right now in this day and age that women have been fairly consistently assaulted and silenced pretty brutally over the ages. Um, I mean, I think most people, hopefully most people are aware of that. And it continues. Uh, I think uh, the entire Republican Party needs to be reminded of that yeah, every that's day. That's a good point. I don't think they're listening to us, no, though. Really not. No. So, but, um, but I did think that it is good to remind ourselves, right, that the oppressors in any system, and I'm glad you said that, Mark, because I'm kind of going to a bigger place here, uh, that the oppressors in any system win when the oppressed don't use or cannot use their voice. And that is why so many um, powers that be will try to silence uh, people. And that's why it's important, no matter what you believe in, no matter what issues you particularly are willing to fight for, um, that we all find a way to use our voice and also defend the rights of others to use theirs. That is my short and sweet yeah. down the pile. Think about all the concern and 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 screaming about voting being um folks that aren't legitimately able to vote right the way that i see it i think it's pretty clear to any of us that are you know not republican uh that's not about they're not legitimately citizens so they shouldn't vote no this is we don't like what they're going to say 
we know that they're not going to be on like Republican tickets more or less. It's much more that. I'm not saying it's Absolutely. exclusively that. Some folks may, of course, say these are our rules and there's a process and they're they're not representing the country because they're not citizens here. But if they're living here that long, right, of course, they're in our system. They're in our cultural yeah. society. It's much more that they just don't. They want to oh, absolutely. Themselves. And my, I know, I, I know uh, you know that, obviously. Yeah, but it's just going to, I think it's really good you brought that up because it is still, this issue has, this issue has never gone away in our country, but it's become more and more of a problem, actually, when it should be declining ever since the civil rights movement, it is getting worse. And there are more and more examples. And the one that um, they all goad me, but gall me, goad me, they all get to me, say that. Um, the one I learned about a few years ago is particularly infuriating is that uh, the Republicans were attempting, I forget in which state out West to stop um, Native Americans who lived on reservations for voting because they don't have standard postal addresses. So these are citizens of our country. They have proof of citizenship, right? People who were born here and they're like, well, you know, they don't have postal. And it is obviously just an attempt at an end run trying to stop people who, you know, aren't going to be voting for your things. And it makes me sick to my stomach. Yes, fully agree. And On top of just blatantly how horrific that story is and what the characters do and go through, um, to your point about, A, finding it surprising that something that old had, <laughs> there's two ways, I guess, to look at it. You, you mentioned like, wow, this sense of the dynamic of shame and how this character used her voice and realized, no, I'm going to throw off the shame. I'm not going to let shame silence me. I am going to not feel it. And I'm going to go out and say something. And, and hence why he tore out her tongue. Um, <laughs> just to pause there, the fact that I've now steeped myself in like learning the muscles and, and, and I can see oh, God. The images. Okay. okay. Oh. You know what I mean? It makes it much more viscerally affecting yeah. to me when Oof. you say he tore her tongue out because now I can see what that would mean physically. And it's horrifying. Um, sorry, I just had to pause there because when you said it, I'm like, ooh, that is fresh in my mind. Um, but what I find very, very de dejecting, is that the word I want, or just depressing, is that this much time has gone by where when this story you're telling me was picked up by Ovid, but it had already existed, you would think that that would have been so helpful for women and men to hear at the time, this dynamic of, no, I, I'm gonna not let shame shut me down here and silence me. I'm gonna do what's not culturally expected of me and I'm going to write what I think any of us now would be like, yes, please don't stay silent. We understand that it is so traumatic um, overall, but but push through and, and let someone know and, you know what I mean? Further society to take that, that man to justice. Um, what's depressing to me is that that was that long ago and it still feels like something that is ripped from, from headlines right now or, or ripped from the story of, of, of women who have gone through this. Um, and, um, and less so in numbers, but men who have been raped when they're younger by, I mean, anyone who is a sexually assaulted and it, they let shame shut them down. Like, yeah. Yikes. That right? Um, That's just so horrifying to me that it's like, when are we going to to 
realize the 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 the, the pain and how awful this is and to not yeah. victimize or sorry not to to blame a victim in this you know it's I mean, on that note, actually, um, I agree with you. It's it's horrifying and depressing and all those words. Um, but before we get into our big question, actually, it's a perfect place. I did want to put, I, w- I wasn't sure where I was going to put this in the podcast, but I think this is perfect just as a resource. Um, if you or anyone you know has suffered a sexual assault, there are support resources available to you. You can reach the National Sexual Assault Hotline 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That number is 1-800-656-4673. And we will, of course, post that in our show notes as well as on our website. On that depressing note, Mark, would no, you I'm like so happy to you, move I'm into I'm so your happy you question. posted that. And if anybody missed that, just mm-hmm. rewind and hear it. And as ben- Allison mentioned, it'll be both in our show notes and on the website. Um, sorry, Alison, what you're saying, move on to our big question. I was saying I, on that note, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, start to start to wind down. We'll do some of our big questions and then get our random noun for next time. So you go first, Mark. Yes, absolutely. So at first I, I had some trouble with this one just because I think today I focused on things that were sort of factual in how the tongue works and what it's doing. And so what I loved about yours, Allison, for example, is you you started there and then jumped to something that has a big connection to a dark part of human experience and and our history societally, et cetera. Whereas where I kind of dove into forgetting and, and and being fascinated by how things were working again. And at first when I sat here, I was like, hmm, I'm not really sure. Um, so I, I literally started my notes, maybe not a big question. Um, because probably somebody does know this, uh, someone who who studies this type of thing. But I was curious: to what extent can we thank our tongue for the the size of our brains and our intelligence? It, mm-hmm. It's hard to believe that if we hadn't evolved the tongue the way that we did to aid in mastication, in chewing, and deglutition, and and swallowing, um, we wouldn't have had this like extra bonus of it being able to make all of these sounds and phonemes and then create a language for us from from what i read at least this was just a couple citations that i had it it didn't evolve for us to talk the primary evolutionary function of this was was food right digestive track but the fact that it like happens to then also be able to manipulate the sounds and work with our vocal for, folds was almost like a an added bonus almost like that that came about now what i would love to continue to look into is that added bonus over so much time had to have some evolutionary i would think evolutionary wins for us the fact that at some point we were able to communicate in sounds and voices to warn others in our tribe or our group had to benefit us right um in, in many ways so that was that was one question, right? The the relationship between our cognition and and our, our tongue, and and I think it's also easy to forget in our day and age, where we our written language and text is so prevalent and everywhere and so on. But for so long of human history, what you knew as a human was passed down through oral tra- um, learning and and traditions and stories, and so I feel like that itself 
was wildly important. Otherwise, it feels like each generation would have started from scratch if, say, we couldn't speak. You wouldn't have right. any of the building blocks of cognition to work with to make sense of the world if we were a species that didn't communicate that way. So it did end up becoming big questions because then I was like, is there the equivalent in like octopi or somebody who can communicate? Well, octopi are clearly smarter than us, so I don't right, know. Right, right. Right, but what I, what I mean is like, how are they <laughs> then communicating? Are they sharing with their young these and conceptual Built, oh, thank you. Yes, because Latin yes. Greek, because the right. plural for right. a Greek word. And we covered word. this when you talked about octopus. <laughs> right, right, right. Thank you. Um, how are they passing some sort of cognitive units to their next generation or, or not? I, I, it feels like they yeah. wouldn't be, but I don't know. They are right, very intelligent mm -hmm. animals. So for us, that was that was one big question. Well, I no, I think it's a really fascinating question, and it's like a chicken egg question, like so yeah. many of our big questions are, right? Um, but the with the octopus and other species, I don't know enough about this, but they they definitely pass things on, right? But it, it it's usually more through mimicry and that sort of thing, right? So not not true, like yeah, you're yeah. saying in, in oral tradition, but I believe in other ways, like we learned about the ants, so they communicate with chemicals and that sort of thing. So I think trees communicating, there, there are ways of communicating that aren't oral language but something i really find fascinating is uh, some of the smarter animals like dolphins um also dogs they've done studies on with both of those animals that, that are ongoing especially dolphins on their vocalizations and these have been going on since the 60s 50s maybe with the dolphins and they um they can get pretty close to mimicking, um, you know, now how much they understand is debated. And a lot of these studies were shut down at some point because people felt like one, you know, we're keeping the animals captive too, where the relationship's getting a little too, you know, enmeshed, all sorts of things. It's actually fascinating. If a Who's word ever, the dolphins? <laughs> if the word ever comes up <laughs> that I could tie this in, I probably will. Like if we find a word, um, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh, one of the, issues uh they can often mimic quite closely but because they don't have the same physical structure their tongues are attached differently the windpipes all that they can't lips not having lips they can't make some of the sounds that mark was teaching us about yes, earlier the, I, I was reading yeah. sorry just to jump in no, that's why good. parrots can parrots having a tongue structure that is very similar in its way not exactly of course but because they can move the tongue and bang it against like the hard palate or quote unquote their beak instead of their teeth that's why they can do a remarkable job mimicking human speech it's it's wild you know? yeah Great. I think that's a great big question. Um, I, not to cheat, at the very end of this, because of that relationship, I wrote one thing that just feels like melodramatic and sci-fi-ish, but excellent. I had to write. I had to had to write it. So, be, thinking of right the the ability of this propagation of of ideas of conceptual ideas that I mentioned, right, which would have been impossible if we couldn't speak. And you were saying probably not with octopuses doing that there it's mimicry of the species or it's something else. It's not. Passing. Well, with octopuses, who knows what it is? Cause they right. are alien True. smart. But, <laughs> right. Right. But this passing though, of if you think of information packets as like, true memes, right? Not memes we see on the internet, but memes as like concepts that are propagating like genes. Is that actually what's driving the whole thing? 
it's not even a human. It's a little odd, this question. And scientists may be like, Mark, you're completely full of crap. But it, it's like, it's something that's not even the living thing, what is actually trying to propagate. And so my question here is, if genes are information in many ways, or memes are information really, and they are really driving the driving force behind our evolution, is it fair to say that in some ways we are just meat puppets of informational units that are trying to grow and survive? Things that are not even alive. It's information. It's, it's a concept. And it is controlling us as a biological entity to propagate itself. I mean, I think we should make this movie. Um, I, I mean, it leads into some of our AI discussions. I mean, if, if we are just packets of information that are using a meat suit to try to communicate and then to try to building AI, build right, is is the same exact thing, but looking for a different medium because we've clearly failed it. And upgrading the medium. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, we don't need this. Like, we don't need all this biology. This, this is outdated. This is, tech. Yeah, this is exhausting and they are not as smart as we thought they were going to be. Like, this is not <laughs> helping. Just move to yeah, machines. Yeah. Interesting. I like the sci-fi twist. Yes. Of course. Duh. Okay. Well, I only have one big question, and of course, well, that's, unanswerable. That's good, probably that's you're being respectful. It is like, good because we're here's we're, my we're, list of twenty other ones. Yeah, so. we're a little over an hour, so I think we should try to wrap. Yes. But my only thing, because I talk so much about um, having a voice, a voice meaning you have agency, etc. My big question is: uh, when we limit any speech, are we endangering all speech? And we could probably have a whole other episode on this that could go for hours. Um, but it just goes back to the free speech debate. So if we limit speech, be, uh, let's say based on, you know, I hate speech. Uh, I want to be very clear. I'm not advocating, not advocating hate, hate speech. Yeah. I'm put, Right. I'm putting this out there as a philosophical question, uh, which is very, I mean, it's never not been relevant, but it's very relevant right now with what's going on at Twitter. But when we limit any speech, are we endangering all speech? When we take away anyone's voice, no matter how much we agree or disagree with um, that, and it's a very hard question to answer. So, Mark, I'll just get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I am. I'm looking up, folks, live um, right now because I um, uh, hold on one second. There it is, Carl Popper, uh, philosopher. I, I couldn't think of the last name. Carl Popper and the paradox of tolerance we'll post that in the notes Great. um the paradox of tolerance is something that i've started to use as my guiding star here like my true north on this this dynamic because to your point Allison, like it's, it's a big question um many folks remind us we don't have ultimate free speech at all times we can't scream fire in a crowded theater and and have it be a lie you and can't therefore scream people get either fa, if you're <laughs> um right and then have people like, get hurt trampled uh, and then not pay consequences right and then say well it's my free speech to scream fire anytime i want in any situation so you immediately establish that it's not it can't be completely untethered. We've decided as a society. And so if you're speak, if you're thinking in legal terms, right, then you've already established that there's a limit. So then where does the limit fall? Um, I, I feel like this is the dynamic in every big question that we face as a society. It's because you, you have to draw what therefore feels like the best 
place to draw the line in the sand that we collectively look at. This is this is the dynamic from abortion to free speech to everything else. Where is this natural line that that doesn't impinge that does the least amount of damage? Um, so back to the, the paradox of tolerance is that if something is expressing the idea of less tolerance for someone else, like hate speech, that they are not going to tolerate someone else's existence. And then we shut them down and we ban them, say, for example, from Twitter, which I am fully enjoying watching completely just go up in flames in the most <laughs> dramatic, insane way so quickly. I don't know if anyone's heard the latest, but so, ooh, so many major, major sponsors and players in Twitter are like, we're out of this shit. Um, it's imploding. It's wild. So fast. Um, anyway, so, so if you were to shut them down and then their retort very often is, well, you're being intolerant. You're, you're, you're being intolerant of me, right? This is what Karl Popper said back, I believe in the forties. I'm going to get that wrong. We'll post it. It's like the only thing as a society that wants to rid itself of this type of thing, to be intolerant of is intolerance. It is basically the only thing as a society that we can't let fly because by its nature, it will spread as a cancer and take advantage of those who won't stand up to it because they're feeling like they're being intolerant if they shut down someone else's belief. That makes sense. And so this paradox dynamic, I think for me, makes a lot of sense. And it really, for me, is the only thing that draws that boundary where you are speaking out about harming or not accepting someone else. And, and you're not putting their humanity and their experience on the same level as yours is really the only thing that we can say that's not okay. Um, I know that's making it very cut and dry. And I realize that there are shades of things you need to look into. Um, but there's a there's a difference between someone saying I'm concerned that X and Y's group uh, of people's perspective on X Y Z is something that we all need to sit down and discuss and come up to some solution that is calling out a specific group and so on right and and saying they don't agree that is not the same as right. all Jews must die right all blacks must do this all gay whites are uh, a cancer on society and, you know, everything that gays, gay whites like me have been called in, in, you know, in history. Um, you know what I'm saying? So that's immediately where you're like, no, that's, that's not okay to say to be intolerant. We can't let that continue to grow. Sorry. I know I'm rambling on, but that is, it's so great that you brought that up because of everything that's been going on recently, I've been so just incensed by it and, and sort of galvanized. By I, know, I had a feeling this, I had a I had a feeling this big question would get you going. So this is perfect. And I, <laughs> I will definitely post um the paradox of tolerance and I will definitely yes, read it yes. because I have not. Um cool. okay. Well that seems I feel I have a very heavy feeling after this episode. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry, that's my fault because I went down a very dark path. Um but also potentially uplifting, just reminding people that we do have our voices. Um, but then also we ended by talking kind of the dumpster fire state of the world, <laughs> which we often do. So maybe next week we'll be a little cheerier, but I think. Right, um, right. But I would, I, I'll pause and ask, we'd love to uh, to have 
you audience sound off. Um, uh, reach us, you know, on on social media. Leave comments, etc. On on YouTube. Uh, how do you feel if if you've been a regular listener? It does feel like we, it's unavoidable at some points that we're going to uncover just some horrible shit that humans have done in the past. And so I never want to make light of it, you know, to, I, not exactly Allison to your point just now, but I feel like you would agree with that, right? We, we certainly, as we're educating ourselves on these things, I feel no. like that's incredibly important to, but we also don't want to be bringing that, you down to bear witness week. to it. To, right. right. Exactly. But for sure you know. to bear witness. Okay. Lenore. <laughs> um, and so we don't want to shy away from that, but also we want to, we want to balance it, right? Because if you only focus on the negative, that's, that's all, that's all we'll be giving. So we're, we're, we want to give it, have it be interesting, but also have it be um, something that is galvanizing and, uh, and inspiring in, in other ways. But anyway, thank you, Allison, for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. So let's do, uh, before we get our new word, let's just very quickly revisit our ratings. So I believe last week I had rated Tongue as a nine. I had high expectations. And Mark, you as an eight. So you had the high roll this week. So which, uh, where where are you going from an eight? I'm going to just float down to a seven. Go a little lower. Wasn't loving this week, but it was interesting. I'm glad that I I learned a you know, a lot yeah. more about the physiology. Yeah. And I definitely learned a lot from yours. Yeah. I'm also going to drop down to a seven. That's a two point drop for me. And again, like I, I, I didn't, I didn't mind this week's research at all. And I learned a lot of good stuff, but I think uh, considering all the cool stuff the tongue does for us, I wasn't finding something that was overly exciting to me. I'm really glad I took the path I did. I think it's important, but you know, I thought tongue might be a little richer. Right. Uh, than it was. Okay. So let's see what we get this week. Are you ready, Mark? I am ready. Okay. So I'm using the random word generator. Huh. So the word the word is height. H-E-I-G-H-T. Height. Height. Okay. Hmm. Um I'm dead in the center on this one. I don't know where it's going to go. Five. I am with you with a five. That's what I thought of immediately because I, I'm like, oh yeah, five. I mean, I'm sure there's some cool stuff out there. I'm just not thinking of what it is right now. Uh, For anyone who's only listening to us and not watching, Mark just did the best arched eyebrow I've ever seen while he was kind of thinking about what to do. Okay. So for next time we have height and Mark and I are just middle of the road on that um, with fives so mark before we close out anything else you wanted to share no i i I think i'm good good. all right well once again everyone thank you so much for tuning in to the renowned podcast if you enjoyed the show please follow or subscribe on whatever platform you are on and if you could leave us a rating it really helps us and it helps other people find the show you can visit us on the web where you'll see all our work cited and um, all the show notes at renownedpodcast.com or find us on social media. We hope you have a great week until next time. Bye everybody.